during that video that we watched. I don't know if your, if your heart got caught in your throat toward the end as we saw the agony that Jesus went through. But if you really think about it, and this kind of struck me this week, how can we love somebody that we've never met? How can we love somebody uh, not only that we've never met, but what would compel us to trust in him? And even a step further, what would compel us to completely devote our lives to him? Now, to answer that question, we really have to ask, what makes him the Savior? What makes him the one who's qualified to put our trust in? What what moves his death from being like every other death, or, or even worse, what moves his death from being completely meaningless and unnecessary to, to actually being a marvelous act of God's grace and mercy? That's what I'd like for us to study tonight just for a few moments. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Luke. The book of Luke chapter 23. When we really think about the reality of Christ's death on the cross and, the, and the, this just horrible agony that he suffered on our behalf, it's, it's easy, as I said during communion, to feel sobered by that and to feel saddened by it. And we should, because it was a sobering and, and tragic event that he would do that on our behalf. And yet, there's also tonight an amazing positive aspect of what happened in Jerusalem on that Friday. And and it's not only uh, something that gives us an assurance of eternal life, because we know that, but it also teaches us about an absolutely astounding aspect of God's character. And and we didn't know, I didn't know what what, uh, the service was going to be about and, and I knew what the choir was going to sing, obviously, but you've seen how God has woven it throughout the service without us even trying. And we come to this study tonight, and we talk about this amazing aspect of God's character and what he's done for us. Let's read Luke's account of the crucifixion. Even though it's familiar, read it like it's the first time. Luke chapter 23, let's start in verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, Golgotha, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. But Jesus was saying, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him. Can you see them? Saying, he saved others, let him save himself, as this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. And there was an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. That wasn't a recognition, that was a mockery. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking, rebuking him, saying, do you not even fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? Are we indeed are suffering justly, or we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds? But this man's done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus said to him, Today I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. 
one of the things that the Holy Spirit has really impressed upon my heart during this Holy Week is the evidence from multiple sources who openly verified that Jesus Christ was innocent of what he was accused of. Now, we're going to look at that more in depth in a moment, but it's very significant because it means that his death was not legally justified. And yet he still willingly and purposely allowed himself to be put on the cross. Now, there can only be three reasons why he would have done that. One, either he was crazy and wanted to die and had some kind of a death wish for some unknown reason. And that's a theory that that has not one shred of evidence, not not one really historian has has suggested that. The Bible doesn't suggest that. that. That's nothing we should even consider. Jesus clearly was not crazy. Or second, he was caught up in a false accusation and he wasn't able to appeal his way out of an unjust sentence. And we'll look at that in a couple minutes. Or third, he loves us. And he chose to die so we would be redeemed from our sin. Now, the first theory makes him an insane fraud. The second theory makes him nothing more than a weak and powerless man. But in the third theory, he is the Lord of all. And his love and his mercy transcend anything that we can possibly imagine. We're not even going to bother with the first one because it's so inaccurate. So let's deal with the other two. Because when we do, we're going to discover and and uncover something we know, but it's so deeply profound, and I want us to really feel it tonight. I want us, as we commemorate the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, I want us to understand anew what God has really done. If you were arrested tomorrow, and you were accused falsely of treason, and trying to overthrow the government of two nations, and if you were accused of theological heresy and blaspheming God and trying to to completely change religion, how would you react? If somebody came and tried to arrest you, my, my guess would be that you and I would probably resist a little bit because we would be so dumbfounded by the charges and we would scream about our innocence and then and then we'd probably tell everybody we know we didn't do it. We'd get our family and we'd get our friends and we would call our church together and we'd put it on Facebook so everybody would know and we would say, hey, you've got to vouch for my character. And then we'd hire the best lawyer and we'd probably have a press conference to tell our side of the story and then we'd go to court and we would believe that we're okay because the judge and the jury would recognize our innocence. And there would be every evidence that, that of proof that we could find that we'd bring to it. And if we saw any opening in the trial, any sense of leniency from the jury or any opening of something the judge said that that might give us a clue that he was sympathetic to us, we would aggressively pursue it because that would be our path to freedom because we're innocent. We would seek everything we could do to say, no, I'm innocent. I'm going to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. From a purely legal and logical standpoint, What is shocking about the account of the time leading up to the crucifixion is that Jesus doesn't do any of those things. When he's arrested in chapter 22, he doesn't fight back physically. In fact, when Peter does and pulls out his sword and cut off Malchus' ear, Jesus says, stop. 
Peter, don't do that. He heals the ear. And he lets them take him. When he's betrayed by Judas in the same passage, he doesn't fight back verbally. He doesn't defend his innocence. What are you doing here? How dare you accuse me? Don't you know who I am? Judas, you're a traitor. Why would you do such a thing? And he doesn't fight back spiritually when he's brought in front of the religious leaders, even though he could have taken them to task for the spiritual corruption that was in their hearts and how they had had adapted the law to fit their own means and how they had lied about him. And he could blow them out of the water in terms of his unblemished holiness and his command of his word. And when he's brought to trial, he doesn't fight back legally. He says one line to Pilate. Even though Pilate could have set Jesus free if he wanted to, and he clearly does. And Jesus doesn't doesn't plead with him. He doesn't beg for, for Pilate to have leniency. When he goes to Herod, who could have eliminated a sense, he doesn't even say a word to him. He doesn't fight any of it. Which means that he's either completely guilty or he willingly gave up himself for a greater purpose and with a greater motivation. Now, what's interesting about the account here in Luke is that so many different people from different backgrounds, with different beliefs and different agendas, each independently confirmed that Jesus was innocent. Turn back just for a couple minutes to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Thanks for turning. We're going to look at a couple passages here. Luke chapter 9 and verse 18. It happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and and others, they say one of the prophets of old has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Now go back over to chapter 19. look at verse 37. Chapter 19, verse 37. As soon as he was approaching Jerusalem near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, it would seem obvious that the disciples would say, that he was innocent. But that's not as as clean an assumption as it might seem on the surface because these men, these disciples, were clearly not sycophants. They had minds of their own and there are actually times when, when they oppose Jesus and when they argue with Jesus and second-guess him. They were there through all three years of his ministry and if anybody would have recognized that he was a fraud, it was them. And if he was a fake, they could and would have easily walked away because to go with him, they had given up everything. And to go to the cross, to to actually defend him to the point of his death, meant that they would actually lose it all. They'd lose their reputation, their jobs, their families, their friends. They'd even lose how history would view them. And more significantly, they potentially could lose their lives. That's when somebody, why when somebody says to Peter in the little courtyard, hey, weren't you with Jesus? He violently and vehemently denies it. 
because he knew if they recognized me, they might put me to death too. So I would suggest to you tonight that the disciples actually would have been the first to say that he was guilty because if he was, they were complete fools to follow him. Instead, they gave the rest of their lives to tell others about him. They gave the rest of their lives even after he went back to heaven. Then we get back to chapter 23, and in verse 4, it says that Pilate says that he finds no guilt in Jesus. And then after Jesus is sent to Herod and sent back to Pilate, we see again in verse 14 that he says Jesus has no guilt, certainly nothing worthy of death, and I'm willing to set him free. Now understand that Pilate had nothing to gain from this. Pilate's the ultimate politician, the sleazy dude who's taken bribes and corrupt and and you can't trust him. He's slick. He's everything you would imagine about a a dirty politician. So, So it would have been far easier for him to appease the people and crucify this troublemaker and keep his nice cushy job. But I want you to notice chapter 3 verse 19 that as the crowd demands for Jesus to be killed, Pilate says again, this is the third time, he is innocent. And then a fourth time in verse 22, he says Jesus is innocent. He knows that this is wrong. He knows that Jesus doesn't have any guilt. But when the crowd won't stop demanding death and won't stop saying crucify, Pilate becomes gutless and he gives in and he lets them have Jesus. But he knew he was innocent. And then Jesus himself affirms the pride and weakness and blindness of man. Look at what he says in verse 34. He says, Father, forgive them. Because if we put it in today's vernacular, they're clueless. They don't get it. They don't understand the gravity of what they're doing. Don't you think it would make more sense for him to be screaming from the cross, this is unjust, this is not right. And yet that was exactly the point of him Being on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus, who knew no sin, had all our sins placed on him, even though we were the ones who were justifiably, eternally condemned by our sin and deserved death. And yet he took it upon himself and offers us complete forgiveness and redemption. Even though he was pure, he took sin on himself and became sin on our behalf so we could be free. And then one more time, look at verse 40. It's confirmed again. We see this thief, and he understands that Jesus is innocent. Now, he's got his own crisis. This is not some bystander who says, oh, he's he's innocent. I think he's fine. This is somebody who's right next to him, suffering his own agony. And you would think, as he's on the cross, that he'd be arguing his own case. That if there's somebody he's going to defend, it's going to be himself. Hey, wait a second. He's innocent. I'm innocent. We're all innocent. Everybody, come on, let us down. Hey, well, I didn't do this. And instead, he stands up for Jesus. And as the other thief is mocking Jesus and ridiculing him, he says, wait, shh, stop. You don't know what you're talking about. We're getting what we deserve. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He's taking the punishment that you and I deserve. See, back in those times, the the court system was a little bit different than it is today. There were no five-year appeals. There were no cases that were thrown out on some strange technicality. That's why the woman who was going to be stoned for adultery 
It was going to be immediate. That's why Jesus' trial only takes a few hours. And you say, well, a lot of people were crucified, but it was because they were caught red-handed where the evidence was undeniable. But we don't see that anywhere here. If you go to the mall and you say to somebody, why was Jesus put to death? They'd be hard-pressed to come up with an answer. We all know he was crucified. We all know he went to the cross. But why? There was no reason other than he was dying for our sin. Jesus was innocent, and even the thief knew that. And then there's a final piece of evidence. Look at verse 47. We see this from a very unlikely source. The centurion who's standing there. It says that he looked up and he recognized he was innocent. This is a Roman unbeliever. A man with huge authority. A man who who put his faith in knowledge. We've been studying through Acts. And we know that the Greek culture and the Roman culture was, was knowledge. And it was what you know inside yourself. This guy worshipped false gods. He had no stake in the Jewish culture at all. But as he watches the crucifixion and he sees Jesus die, he's overwhelmingly convinced that Jesus is innocent. And the word there is very important in the Greek. It literally means he is faultlessly righteous without any guilt. Not just, ah, he's okay, he's a good guy. No, he looks at him as a Roman atheist and he says, that man is faultless. He's completely righteous. There's not an ounce of guilt in him. And what's fascinating from the text is that he says this. Look at verse 47. The Spirit records him praising God. What an odd reaction as you watch an innocent man die. But the centurion had gotten the truth and the insight in his heart and mind from watching Jesus. And as he does that, he praises God for his power and his sufficiency and his holiness and the sacrifice. And right there he believes and says, truly, that's the Son of God. That's the one. You all missed it. I get it. He's innocent. He's dying for us. Now, we can establish that Jesus is innocent. We can look at the eyewitness testimony, and we can say that despite that, he didn't fight the false charges against him. But but we're still left with a little bit of a mystery. Why, if there was no guilt in him and no reason to sacrifice himself because he was innocent, why did Jesus willingly and joyfully go to the cross? He would have been perfectly justified to condemn us and to send us straight to hell. Because he's God and we clearly deserve it. So why go? Why be ridiculed and spit on and mocked and accused and beaten and whipped and put on a cross, barely saying a word and suffer this agonizing, horrible, painful death? Now for that answer, when we discover that, and to give us a fresh appreciation and love for the Lord, look at one more passage. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Let's finish with this. These verses are some of the greatest words that we could ever read. And verses 8 to 9 of Romans chapter 5 are the encapsulation of the gospel message, and they're what we put our confidence in tonight as believers. Look at chapter 5 of Romans, verses 6 to 11. For while we were still helpless, notice every word, the Spirit includes everyone on reason. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some will even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Go back and read slowly through the first seven words of verse 8, because there we see the most amazing truth about God that we can possibly fathom. Here is the great motivation of Jesus Christ. Here's what drove him to the cross. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. What exactly have you and I done tonight to be worthy of God's love? It's not because we're good. The Bible says there's not one of us who's righteous. None of us can pound our chest tonight and say, look at me. I am so awesome. I am so good. I'm just perfect. And it's not because we deserve it, because we sinned. We offended His holiness. We've fallen far short of His glory. And it's not because we loved Him first, because this says that Jesus came while we were still sinning against Him, while we were estranged from Him, while we were His enemies. So there's no rational thinking with our minds. There's no rational justification why God would ever love us. And yet He does. And He openly demonstrates His love toward us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But understand this tonight. This is not a begrudging love. It's not a partial love that reserves something back. When you're finally pleasing to me, then I'll really love you. Look at the details in the verses. I love this. Let's finish with this. Look at verse 5. It says, hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been what? Tell me the next verse. Word. Poured out. It's been poured out on us. In other words, His love is abundant and lavish. And if you ever doubt that or think that He's stingy or unfair or that He demands too much of you, all you have to do is look at the cross. When was the last time when somebody offended you or somebody was hurtful or hateful to you or hurt you in every single way possible? When was the last time when somebody damaged you like that that you said, I'm going to pour out love on you. I'm going to overwhelm you with my love for you. The answer is never. But that's what God did. Notice verse 6. It said he gave us this love even though we were helpless. The word there means impotent. No power to save ourselves. Nothing good in us. No power even to do what was right. We had no hope. And yet at just the right time, Christ died for us. He didn't do it because we deserved it. He did it because we were ungodly sinners. And yet he loves us and he felt pity for us. And he offered redemption for us from sin. But that required something. That required a sacrifice. Look at verse 8. In his love, he died in our place. But let me tell you something tonight. 
it doesn't mean anything that he died for us unless he was also able to defeat sin and death. Unless he was able to change us from impure to pure. That's why we don't dwell on the agony of Friday. We look forward to Sunday because this is not the end. Jesus is not still on the cross. It's empty. The work is done. And when we look at verse 9, it says when we trust Christ, we're justified by his blood. That means God says, I'm declaring you and making you righteous. I'm saving you from my wrath, which is justified. I'm delivering you from my judgment, which you deserve. And my blood of my son is going to pay for and cover and remove your sin forever. And because I'm going to do that, look at the last verse, I'm going to reconcile you to myself. You're going to go from being my enemy because of sin to being my child, and you're going to be saved by Christ's sacrifice, and it's because of Jesus and Jesus alone that you have eternal life. And if you don't have that tonight, now is the time. You know the gospel, you've heard it. Verses 8 and 9 tell you all you need to know. While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, while we were hostile, while we wanted nothing to do with him, while we had no righteousness of our own, Christ died for us. See, when you know Christ, everything changes. Your heart and your mind is filled with undeniable, unmistakable joy. And look at how Paul lists it in verse 11, and we'll pray. He says, not only this, as if being saved wasn't enough. But we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the reconciliation. When you know Christ, it produces two responses. It produces joyful praise and fervent love. When you know Christ, listen now. When you know Christ, it produces joyful praise and fervent love. Paul says we exult in God through Christ. In other words, we cry out. We say, oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. We praise you for what you have done. Oh Lord, we love you for what you've done. Thank you for what you have done for us. How could there be any other reaction? How could there be any other response as we look at that empty cross but say, oh Lord, you've done it. That's why even on a deeply humbling night like tonight, as we remember his death and his amazing sacrifice, we're sobered, but we don't stay that way. This is not a funeral service tonight. His death is not the end, it's only the beginning. So while our hearts are solemn, our hope is staggering, because Jesus paid it all. And the Bible says, exalt in him, praise him, glorify him, magnify him, because he's done it all. And then look at what it says that can only produce a greater love for Him. It's never easier to love someone than when you're confident that they love you. It's hard to love somebody when you think they're kind of holding back. Something's not right. Yeah, I don't feel like you're, you're, you're all there. I don't feel like you're sacrificing. It's just, I, I, want, I want to feel your love, but it's not quite there. But when you know that person loves you and you can't, it's, it's overwhelming how much they love you. you. You just can't help but love them back. What does that mean? That means we should never struggle to love the Lord. But not just during Holy Week. Listen, it was easy for the choir to sing that song tonight. Every day 
We should sing that song. We love Him because He first loved us. And He proved it in the most spectacular, complete, life-changing way possible. Do you love Him tonight? I mean, do you really love Him? He loves you. He proved it on the cross. The Bible says, greater love has no man than this, than he lays down his life for a friend. But, but Jesus went a step farther. He said, I'm laying down my life for you because you're my enemies. I'm laying down my life for you even though you hate me. And he did it to deliver us from sin and redeem us from its curse and to secure eternal life for all who believe. So my question is, do you believe him tonight? Do you have all your trust in him? If you came here tonight and you're with somebody and, and you don't know him, you didn't know him before tonight, maybe you never heard this before, or you've been resisting it, you've been saying, I don't want, I'm not going to give up to that. That's, that's a fairy tale. It's not right. I'm telling you right now, you can do it. And what a night to do it. How differently will Sunday look to you if you trust in Christ tonight and say, he's the one who sacrificed for me and secured salvation for me. Listen, when you wake up Sunday morning and you know that tomb's empty, your heart will be so full of joy you won't be able to hold it in. If you know him tonight and you trust him, oh, church, we've got to love him the way he loves us. How much more of our life can we surrender to him? We're holding back. Lord, I'll give you some. I'll, I'll, I'll yield partway. How much more can we put our trust in Him? Lord, everything I've got, I'm all dependent on You. How, how much more can we praise Him? Let's declare our love for Him because the cross is empty and the tomb is empty. Sunday's coming and He has defeated sin and death forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. You have done it all. We bring nothing. If anything, we brought opposition, and yet you defeated it. You secured salvation for us to ever, forever, just because you love us and because you were willing to make the sacrifice on our behalf. So, Lord, we praise you tonight. Lord, I pray if there's someone here tonight that does not know you, that has never trusted in you right now, break their heart. Show them your love in a fresh way. Convince them, Lord. Convince them that they need you. We've all been there, Lord. We're all sinners before you, and yet your love is so amazing and so compelling that we can't help but trust in you. So, Lord... If there's someone here tonight that doesn't trust in you, right now I pray that they would. And Lord, for those of us that love you and trust you, deepen that love every day. Just overwhelm us with what you have given to us and how you have worked in a powerful way in our lives. Lord, we declare our love for you tonight. We declare our trust in you. We are yours. You've purchased us. And we give ourselves to you. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.